The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Nancy Alderman. She is the founder and president of Environment and Human Health, Inc., a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to the protection of human health from environmental harms. EHHI is composed of physicians, public health professionals, and policy experts dedicated to protecting human health through research, education, and the promotion of sound public policy. Among her many accomplishments, Ms. Alderman is a former board member of the Environmental Defense Fund. She worked to stop and shut down an Upjohn chemical plant in North Haven, Connecticut, that was exposing thousands of residents, including schoolchildren, to the toxic emissions emanating from the plant. She is also the recipient of numerous awards, including the New England Public Health Association's Award for Outstanding Contributions to Public Health in the Environmental Health Area, the Connecticut Bar Association's Award in Recognition of Making a Significant Contribution to the Preservation of Environmental Quality Through Work in the Fields of Environmental Law, Protection, or Planning, as well as the prestigious Dragonfly Award from Beyond Pesticides. Ms. Alderman holds a Master's in Environmental Studies from the Yale School of the Environment. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you. I'm happy to be with you. Well, I am so impressed with your work and your organization, and I guess we should start our conversation by my simply asking you, how did you become interested in environmental health? It was clear to me from the work that I was doing I was on the board, as you mentioned, of the Environmental Defense Fund, but I was also president of the Connecticut Fund for the Environment. And what I found was what I thought was the greatest problem facing all of us were the environmental harms that I thought were affecting us all. And I could not, from board positions, get organizations to focus on it. And I tried really hard, and I just couldn't do it. And I thought, you know, this has to get done. Somebody has to look at where the environment is harming people and then change policies to protect people. So I didn't have a BA degree. I had gotten married after two years of college, and I knew I couldn't do health without advanced degrees. And so I live in New Haven, and Yale is in New Haven. So I applied to see if I could finish my undergraduate degree so that I could go on to graduate school. And that's what I did. I went back as an older person, and it was very difficult, if I do say so, taking chemistry and biology with all these people who were 18 and 19 years old. But anyway, I did it, and then I went on to the Yale School of, at the time it was called the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. So when I got out, then what I needed was to work for somebody. And 
I couldn't find anybody who was doing the work of environment and human health. There was nobody doing it. And there was one organization that was just beginning called the Physicians for Social Responsibility out of Washington, D.C. And I interviewed there, but I couldn't move to Washington. So what was left to me was either to start a nonprofit or to do nothing. And I couldn't do nothing after all the effort I had put in to getting my degrees. And so I started a nonprofit, but I was panicked that I would not be able to raise the money to pay staff. And somebody said to me, hire people who don't need to be paid. And I thought, I never heard of such a thing. How do you hire people that don't need to be paid? Well, that's what Environment and Human Health, Inc. is. We are 11 people, all at the top of their game, who all have another job. And so I don't have to pay them. I only have to pay when they do a piece of work, like a report or research. Otherwise, we have the chair of OBGYN at the Yale School of Medicine. We have an oncologist from the Yale Medical School. We have the toxicologist, who is the toxicologist for the state of Connecticut. We have the past commissioner of health from the state of Connecticut. So everybody is at the absolute top of their game. They're all employed, and they all work because they are dedicated to making sure that the public is protected. And so that's how we started, and that's how we've continued. And we've been able to do an enormous amount of research and policy enactments, all in the name of protecting people. Well, it's quite remarkable that you graduated in 1997 and started this nonprofit also in the same year and have been able to raise funds to pay for those key reports that you've published. And just so our listeners know, the research areas that your nonprofit has covered include artificial turf, breast cancer, drinking water wells, fetal exposures, healthy schools, obesity, pesticides, plastics, and many more, things that are certainly included in any discussion of food and water. And I always like to remind people that water is actually our most important nutrient. So working in environmental areas that protect water is absolutely embedded in any dietitian's work. And I think we need to also assume that we don't have the protections that we think we do, right? We think we turn on the tap or we go to the grocery store, we buy canned food, we buy something in a package, and we think that there are some government agencies that are keeping us safe. It wouldn't be sold, for example, if it wasn't safe. And your reports have uncovered quite the opposite. Right. Well, the very first report we ever did was a drinking water study of private homes. And the reason a state can't do that is people don't want to give their wells over to the state because if they find something in the well, then they can't sell their house. So we had to promise that nobody other than us would ever find out what was in their wells. And we got it underwritten, so it didn't cost them very much. And we tested 53 wells, private wells, 
to see whether there were lawn and tree care pesticides in their wells. And it was really interesting because we picked a town of Woodbridge, Connecticut, because it's basically a bedroom town. There's no industry in that town. It's mainly just residential. But there are golf courses in that town. And we assumed before we did the testing that the houses near the golf courses would be the most impacted. And what we found was actually fairly surprising to us. We asked everybody whether they were regular users of pesticides, intermittent users of pesticides, or non-users of pesticides, and were organic. And what was interesting is that in the wells where we found pesticides, we even found them in the properties that were not using pesticides. And if anybody has ever read Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, she talks about the fact that if pesticides are used anywhere in a town, they can show up any place else in the town in the groundwater because groundwater moves. It's not stationary. So, of course, it makes sense that water that is impacted by lawn and tree care pesticides If people are on wells in the whole town, it's going to show itself in all kinds of places that people might not expect. So we thought that was really interesting. But one more thing, as we met with town people to get their permission for their wells, a woman raised her hand and said, I know we're here about the well study, but I have to tell you, my child was poisoned in the grammar school this week by pesticides being put in the child's cubby and they all take their lunches and some of them in brown bags and my child's lunch was in a brown bag and a janitor must have sprayed the cubbies because he got really sick he didn't die but he got very sick and I said I promise you we will deal with this I can't do it tonight we're doing well water study But by tomorrow, I will find out what is going on, and we will change the policies, whatever they are, that could cause anything like this to happen. And that's exactly what we did. And that led not only to the well study, but it led to changing the policies of how pesticides are sprayed in schools. So never again in Connecticut could a janitor start spraying cubbies And the worst of it was the kids had lice in their heads. And anybody who knows about lice, you don't spray cubbies to get rid of lice. So anyway, that was the beginning of Environment and Human Health, Inc. It pushed us right into the fray of, number one, what's going on, really, and how do we change the policy to protect people? And that's where we started. What a fabulous story. I think you bring up such excellent points. Part of our discussion really should be how people learn about these products that are used. So I'm I'm thinking about the child who had his lunch exposed to pesticide sprays. And first of all, we have to expect a pediatrician to consider that the child was poisoned by pesticides. That in itself is a challenge. How many physicians or pediatricians specifically know to ask about pesticide exposure? 
That's true. And what we also learned as we worked with so many doctors, after all, there are 11 of us and over half are physicians. What we learned is what is taught in medical schools, because, of course, they all went to medical school. And the environment is not taught in medical schools. And so when people say, oh, I'm going to ask my doctor about wood smoke, or I'm going to ask my doctor about synthetic turf, that probably is not your best resource. It could be, but it isn't necessarily your best resource. So some doctors have trained themselves to know a lot more about the environment and its effect on health. But I just need to say that in most medical schools, that is not part of the curriculum. Right. And there is an opportunity to have brochures in the waiting room or little videos in a waiting room. I'm thinking about ways parents can be informed about these potential dangers to their children. The other issue is the lawn chemical relationship between not only pet health, of course, we know that pets that are raised on lawns that are sprayed are more likely to develop cancer, but how many families know that when they get the mailing from the lawn chemical companies saying, spray your lawn, have a healthy lawn, typically there are children and pets in these greenish brochures. How do we get the right information out there to influence people who get these brochures to let them know, "Uh uh-uh, this is just about getting the company employed, it will harm or potentially harm your family? Well, it's extremely difficult because the money is on their side. But if you ever look at their brochures, it's really interesting. They never tell you what they're spraying. What they tell you is, we will do pre-emergent weed control. Well, nobody knows what that means. We will have post-emergent weed control. We will do a spraying for fungicides, but they never mention what the actual material is that they're going to use. And so industry has learned how to sell its product, and that's one of the ways they sell their product. And some people really care that their lawn looks absolutely green and pristine, and that's a problem. I would never say that people shouldn't have lawns because I think lawns are wonderful in that you can play croquet on them and you can play volleyball on them and whatever. Lawns are great, but you don't need pesticides to have a lawn. I've had a lawn for a long time and I don't use anything. So you certainly can have a fine lawn. It will have some dandelions in it and you just have to not be driven crazy when a dandelion pops up. Yes, and dandelions are also one of the first foods for bees. So I just want to put a plug in for that oh, beautiful plant. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Let me take one break and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Ms. Nancy Alderman. She is the founder and president of Environment and Human Health, Inc. It's a nonprofit organization dedicated to the protection of human health from environmental harms. Nancy, in preparation for this interview, I went back and listened to a presentation that you gave in 2012. You spoke at the Beyond Pesticide Forum, and you said two things that I thought needed to be repeated. The first was people who work on reducing pesticide exposure in our environment have to have endurance. And the second was that you brought up the fact that you were asked to give a talk about Rachel Carson, and you went back and you reread her book. Silent Spring. 
And you said that at the time, she was talking about labels on these products that are for sale in every garden center, every hardware store. Again, the consumer goes in, thinks they're fine. But you mentioned specifically the very teeny tiny print and the warnings that are stated. And sometimes if they're not even stated on the label, you can go online and do research on these ingredients. And anybody in their right mind who really read and understood the risk from these products would not be using them. That is true. And our most recent brochure is on Roundup, which is basically glyphosate. And the reason we got into that is because one of the 11 of us, Barry Boyd, who is an oncologist at the Yale School of Medicine, he has been doing a lot of the trials where people have gotten non-Hodgkin's lymphoma from overuse of Roundup or glyphosate products. And I don't know if everybody knows this, but it's certainly been in the news that Bayer that bought Monsanto, who developed Roundup, has been sued and has had to pay out millions, if not billions, of dollars for the people who have gotten non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So we did a brochure on Roundup because it's being sold in every store, at least in Connecticut. It's on the shelves of Home Depot and Lowe's. It's everywhere. And people assume that because it is being sold, you can just pick it up and buy it, that it's safe. And they're using it when a weed pops up in their driveway or on their patio or whatever. And often in the summer, because that's when weeds tend to grow, and they often have on sandals and non-protective gloves or shoes, and they get often the material on them. And it's toxic. There's no question about it. Things that are designed to kill weeds by design are usually toxic. So we do have a brochure on Roundup, and we will have a policy initiative that we are going to, from this brochure, that we're going to bring up in Connecticut's legislative session when it starts in February. And that is to make Roundup or glyphosate products a registered pesticide. If it becomes a registered pesticide, only applicators can use it, licensed applicators, and it will get it off all the shelves of the stores, and private people just can't pick it up and start spraying all over their house willy-nilly. And so I don't know that we'll get it passed. One never knows when you start an initiative, but we're going to try and hopefully maybe other people in other states will agree with us and try the same thing in their states. The other thing about these lawn chemicals, in addition to glyphosate, because as weeds have become resistant to that particular compound, additional products are on the market, two of which concern me a great deal, one of which is dicamba, the other is 2,4-D, and those are also found in commonly used lawn chemicals that these companies go around and spray. And they can drift and harm gardens. They can harm fruit trees. They can harm vegetables, fruits, native plants that more and more people are interested in having. So I think this discussion, if anything, should help our listeners understand that these green, happy-sounding lawn chemical companies really do poison us 
whether it is seepage into our drinking water or whether it is playing on the grass or whether it is from drift. I know there's one label in particular that says if the temperature is over 80 degrees, this particular product should not be used. And I think, gosh, here in the Midwest, it starts to get to be over 80 degrees earlier and earlier in the spring. Right, right. So we've got a conundrum. Well, those two pesticides that you mentioned are in weed and feed. Mm-hmm. So weed and feed is sold everywhere for the public to use. It isn't just for people in agriculture, where it is, of course, but it's also on the same shelf as Roundup or other glyphosate products. You can also buy weed and feed and bring it right home, and it has those two pesticides in it. Right. And I thought it was interesting also during your talk at the Beyond Pesticide Forum that you brought up the issue of the names that we use for agencies or for products. So it used to be there would be a pesticide department or, say, a product labeled as a pesticide. And now we see more friendly terms like crop protection. That should be a red flag for anyone. If you see the words crop protection, that is code for pesticides. Interesting. Yeah, it's amazing what they can come up with. And also, when we used to go to the legislature and the people who would be against us, they changed their names so that you can't tell the people who are for pesticides from the people who are trying to control pesticides. They all sound alike. So it's really interesting how industry has figured out how to keep going. Right. Do you find in your policy work that focusing your efforts to protect children and pets are the most effective ways to communicate? Well, they certainly are. People really care about their dogs and their cats. There's no doubt about that. And certainly they care about children. And we know that because children are small, it takes much less of anything to harm a child or a cat or a dog than it does a human. So we have focused a lot of what we do, a lot of our plastic work, our early plastic work, was really focused on children and children's health. And we now have a new plastic report that is really on all of our health and the environment's health as well. But our first plastic report was really on plastic in toys, plastic in baby bottles that had harmful chemicals in them. So yes. Oh, and also one of the most successful things we ever did was school buses, which was strictly children. We monitored children to see how much diesel exhaust they were breathing while they were riding to school and riding home. And we found that they were exposed to 10 times the amount of diesel exhaust that the outside air would have. Mm. And then we figured out why, how that much diesel got into the buses that these children then had to ride for sometimes a half hour breathing it in. And when we found out how it happened, then we changed the policy of how school buses were allowed to idle, picking up children and letting them off and whatever. We completely changed the way school buses were driven. That's so important. Also, I want to mention your recognition of the role of the placenta in pregnant women and how we used to think that the placenta would protect our developing children 
from toxins that the mother might ingest, but actually what you've discovered or what you have explained to the public is that the placenta does allow toxins through. And so when we look at the microplastics, for example, in one of your latest reports, as well as things like BPA that we find in food cans, for example, and other food packaging toxins, the placenta is not protecting the fetus. And we really need to focus on future generations and protecting them. Well, they had told us a long time ago not to drink, don't smoke when you're pregnant. So it was sort of clear, if you're not meant to drink, that it must be, and because it will affect the child, it had to be doing something. We also thought the brain barrier was protecting the brain. And things we now know, not everything, but certain things do penetrate the brain barrier. So I think all the safeguards that we thought we had, we do not necessarily have. Yeah. I think that's very true. Well, the brochures that you have produced and the reports are so consumer-friendly and informative. And I think that we will have our listeners go to www.ehhi.org and just have the ability to peruse those research areas and get information for themselves and share it with others Nancy, we've got just a few minutes left, and I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to bring forth anything, whether it's a new area of research or some of your own work history that you want to make sure our listeners know about. I guess what I really care about is that when people see sort of what is wrong, that they will try to make it better. I think we all can no longer be passive partners in anything. I mean, that goes for politics as well. I think we have to be part of solving these problems because the problems are getting vast. They're getting so much worse than they were when I started in 1997. Whoever knew that we would end up with an epidemic of plastic? Who knew that climate change would actually be with us. We knew it was out there, but did we know that we were going to actually see it all? So our problems are vast, and I'm afraid it's going to take all of us. It isn't just going to take a few of us. It's going to take everybody. And as they once said, living in a democracy is hard work. Well, living in a polluted world is also hard work. It's hard work to understand it, it's hard work to try to avoid the things that are most harmful, and it's hard work to try to get it all better. But I'm afraid we've all got to do that. And Melinda, you're doing a great job of educating people, and it's going to need everybody. It is going to take everybody, and a good first step for our listeners would be to visit www.ehhi. And I also want to commend you for your daily updates. And if you'd like those, you can go to info at ehhi.org and request to be put on that daily mailer. Because I think being educated is our first step. And then knowing that it is hard to get anything done politically, but it's a lot easier when you're not working alone. So Nancy, unfortunately, we've got to close because our time is up. But I want to thank our listeners for joining us. 
Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Nancy Alderman, founder and president of Environment and Human Health, Inc., a nonprofit organization dedicated to the protection of human health from environmental harms. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you.